Shoreditch in the East End of London has an incredibly rich and varied history. From theatre and Shakespeare in Elizabethan times, the wealthy traders and French Huguenot silk weavers in the 17th century, to the decline of the furniture industry in the late 19th century, when the area was one of the worst slums in London. The Illustrated London News in 1863 described the terrible living conditions in the old nickel as one painful and monotonous round of vice, filth and poverty, huddled in dark cellars teeming with disease and death. Today, Shoreditch must be one of the trendiest and most fashionable places in London, and this is the location of today's guest's excellent recent book, The Last Director of Shoreditch. Hugh Jones' day job is Europe Regulation Correspondent at Thomson Reuters, and he's never known such fascinating times with the advent of Brexit and COVID-19 back to back. But as lover of London and social historian, Hugh's fast-paced novel spins between the posty gang of Shoreditch in the late 1950s and what he calls modern-day Silicon Easters, latte-sipping tech startup millennials. Enjoy this fascinating insight into one of the jewels of London past and present. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. I've got a special offer for you. Regular listeners to the podcast will know that at the end of each interview, we ask our guests to tell us one or two of their favourite places in London that is personal to them and perhaps not everybody knows about. Well, I've now compiled for you 60 of my guests' favourite places in London, and you can get this unique brochure 100% free. Alongside each guest recommendation is a brief quote explaining why they love the place, a lovely picture of it, plus links to the venue and the podcast episode itself so you can check it out in your own time. It's completely free, and all you have to do is go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com on the homepage and click on the red button where it says Guests' Favourite Places in London. Click here for your free copy. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did creating it for you. Keep listening. Best wishes and keep safe. Steve. Okay, well, I'm delighted to have on the podcast today none other than um, Hugh Jones. Doesn't It's not a very London name, I know. <laughs> but well, what, what is London today, Hugh? You know, London uh, is a great mix of people. That's why you come here. It, it, it's why why we live here. Yeah. You live right in the thick of it, don't you? You live right in the heart of London, in, in the east end of London, Shoreditch. Absolutely. The original if I'm not London, mistaken. yeah. 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 Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. I don't know how to describe you. How would you describe yourself? You, uh, I mean, the reason I've got you on the podcast is primarily to have a chat with you about your wonderful book, The Last Director of Shoreditch, which we'll, we'll come on to and talk, talk about in some length shortly. But you're also... Um, I don't know if you're a sins <laughs> journalist. <laughs> uh, what do you call yourself? A financial journalist in the, for um, Thomson Reuters. That's right. Discuss the yeah for Europe Europe regulation correspondent. That's right. I basically cover yeah yeah you, you kind of cover basically how the city the, the the city of London the financial district how it's evolving with Brexit with COVID with anything that's thrown at it how the the ancient municipality of the city is developing and expanding and, and surviving let's face it uh, so brexit that's a word we haven't heard for a little while that that was a word we heard incessantly for what a year 18 months up to uh, up to the turn of this year <laughs> and then covid took over how's brexit um, is, is coming back into vogue again as it started to take off again in the news did that take a back seat for you in terms of uh, financial reporting, or has that always been there? 
No, I mean, I spent two, three years covering Brexit and then suddenly COVID comes along and, and throws everything else uh, to the side, naturally. And now, slowly, with just, what, five, six months to go, the real Brexit, um, yeah, it's very much back to the fore and um, there's going to be a big change. Yeah. Are we going to make it by the end of the year, the deadline, the drop-dead date? Or is it going to be the old cliff edge? <laughs> It's going to be a bit of a cliff edge, really. Uh, it's pretty clear the government's not going to ask an extension. Uh, and, yeah, we'll be uh, definitely, we are outside the EU, but it will feel that we're outside the EU. Next year, when you're going on a holiday, you're going to need travel insurance. You might be in a queue in um, customs. So, yeah, it'll feel very different. We're going to be in a queue for, queue for customs, wearing face masks, socially distanced. <laughs> yeah, you're better off having a holiday at home. <laughs> the, the, the new abnormal. <laughs> it's very, very weird. L- London, London is a weird place at the moment. Very strange. So, how have you coped during during lockdown in London? Uh well, I work from home from the starts from mid uh, March. Uh, it's kind of strange. I'm absolutely blessed. I have a job. I can work from home. So, I'm very, very lucky in that respect. It's been manic obviously. Um, but uh, the sort of new normal is starting to take over now. You, your day is a bit less manic, but uh, still it, it's there, you know, and um, you go outside. Outside in Shoreditch is a lot more like the normal now. I mean, the traffic, everyone's out there having a drink, the bars are getting fuller, the, the restaurants are reopening. So life is coming back, definitely, um, in Shoreditch anyway. Are you brave enough to go out there and go for a drink in the bars and cafes, or are you still a bit reluctant? No, no. Went went out for the first meal out on Friday, last Friday. Went for a, went for a burger and went for a pint. So uh, you just got to do it, haven't you? you? You can't stay in your house forever. I think there comes a point where where we've all we've all got to bite the bullet ultimately, haven't we? Otherwise, the economy. What is it? Drop twenty five percent. GDP the last last quarter, yeah, it's not good, worst, is it? Worst in three hundred years. This yeah. is the Great wow. Frost. So, uh, <laughs> what happened to the Great Frost? Did the, did the Thames freeze over or something? The Great everything froze over. Everything froze <laughs> over. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it just shows that the economy depends on us spending every day. You know, otherwise, it's screwed. But it from a from a private consumer point of view. It does show you what you can live without, though, doesn't it? And how you can save a few quid, which you didn't appreciate you could save previously. Oh, I can't afford this, I can't afford that. All of a sudden, you find you, you, you're not spending anything. Yeah, you're not and, spending and six and pounds living... on, a, on a pint of craft ale in Shoreditch or, um, you or know. Three so pound on 30... a latte. <laughs> yeah, three pound on a latte or 30 quid on a, on a Vietnamese you know, plate of noodles. So, um, yeah, yeah it, it's you reassess what your expenditure, you know, what you spend on, really. And from, sorry, we're, div- we're a bit of a diversion, but it's, it's interesting diversion from my point of view. Anyway, we've dropped 25%. The other, I mean, you, you work in the financial markets or you understand the financial markets. How, how are European friends and competitors doing? Are they dropped similarly, sort of, similar sort of sums? Yeah. Uh, Nobody's yeah. escaped this. Uh, it's, a, it's the same for everyone. And, um, we need everyone to come back because, you know, every country trades with each other. You know, we go on holiday there. They come on holiday. I mean, tourism is huge in London. 
But there are all the hotels are opened in Shoreditch for a start. You know, all these tourists come here Airbnb in the weekend, spend their money. That that helps the economy, you know, and uh, we need that to start again. So what does a typical day look like for you? I mean, because it hasn't obviously changed for you. You work from home. The financial markets don't stop, whether they're good, bad or average, <laughs> good, bad or indifferent. So, I mean, uh, it's just another interesting day for you, isn't it, I guess? So what, what, what does it look like for you? Yeah, basically, you know, you, you have to get up before 7 because a lot of the news breaks, official news breaks around 7 a.m. So you have to be there ready and um, and you take it from there. Some news, you know it's coming, you've been tipped off or um, under embargo. Other news, you just don't know. I mean, it just lands and you have to deal with it. So um, it's part of the job, really. But um, And it's been manic. I mean, you've seen how the authorities have been trying to calm things down. Basically, the government and everyone else throwing money at the economy to try and keep us afloat, right, long enough so it can restart. We'll find that out in the autumn. So, uh, yeah, it's... it's it's an amazing time to be a journalist. Um, just like Brexit, we were talking about earlier, it's an amazing story. Parts of it you may not like, but for a journalist, it's an amazing time. It's historic. It's historic. I mean, uh, it must be exciting for you. I mean, every day, every virtually every minute of every day, you don't know what's going to land on your desk, do you, in terms of a break, breaking news story? No, you don't. And, and the problem we have really is just so much is happening. It's hard to stand back and try and piece together what it all means to make sense of it. And, you know, this because there's so much happening, uh, so many pieces, uh, you sometimes lose the plot because it's just too complicated, it's too fast. So you feel, you know, you look back on what happened last month or the month before, and you think, oh, I should have done that better if I'd have looked, I was looking in the wrong place or whatever. But, you know, that's life. As they say, journalism is the first cut, you know. So how does it work for you? Do you, do you get tip-offs from your, your colleagues, I don't know, who are doing research, or you, you do the research yourselves, or do you get tip-offs from, uh, I don't know, people, sources within government who are briefing or within the financial markets? How, how do you gather and then put, piece together your stories, which you presumably then have tight timeframes to get them out before the, 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 the news changes with a couple of hours later? Yeah. No, you, you, you tipped off something's coming. I mean, a lot of the news is managed. Uh, behind the scenes um, or mismanaged. Uh, some of the more controversial stuff is leaked. You know, the people will get the idea early on and get used to it. So when you're actually broken, it, it has less of an impact. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the news is managed. There's, there's not that much that's really, really new. Mm. It's fascinating. And if I understood half of it, I'd probably find it even more fascinating. I just sort of, I, I enjoy the high level stuff, not not the uh, not the nitty gritty. But it's great. So how did you get into it? I, I mean, we discussed off offline, as it were, before before we went live, that we both went to uh, Manchester. Uh, you went to university. I was at the Poly and our paths crossed for about a year in the, uh, in the <coughs> 80s. <laughs> Showing our age now. <laughs> well, what did you, what did you study at uni? I did uh, I did uh, French economics and politics and um, at uni um, I was trying to think what to do uh, as you do um, and then especially by the final year when you start to panic and then um, but I thought I wanted to be a journalist and so I did you know student journalism you go to the student union meetings and you write about you know what goes on there and other stuff you know so that was a lot of fun 
And then after uni, um, I went to work for local papers in Wales, um, which was pretty interesting, actually. You're seeing a, a community from a very different angle from what you grew up with. And uh, then I went to trade magazines in London. Um, and then I went to moved to New York, uh, went to Reuters in New York, and I've been with them for 25 years in New York, London, and in Brussels. So um, this usual sort of news agency career in a way. And, but most of the time I've spent in London. I mean, I moved to London in 83 originally, and so I've been backwards and forwards to other places, but always come back to London, really. Why is that, do you think? What is it that draws you back? It's just the mix. It's just the sheer breadth of different places. A lot of friends here as well, obviously. Um, got another city very well, very well over the years and uh, always enjoyed it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere you keep coming back to, really. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I, I always say um, I love traveling but i always love and appreciate coming back to london for better or for worse it's it's got something for everybody every day of the week there's always always a new story always something to learn and through the course of doing this podcast i said to you before i just learned and meet so many wonderful people and so many new stories and there's no greater story than the one we're going to talk about now which is the book that you wrote a couple of years back now that's right um, yeah, yeah a copy of which i have in front of me called the last director of shoreditch now it's a story i i have to confess i wasn't familiar with first of all why i mean you're a journalist so you're obviously good you know with a pen in your hand or uh, a, a, at a typewriter but when did you realize you had a book in you first of all well it was um where i live in shoreditch is right next to what's called the boundary estate and it, it was the first council estate in Britain and it was built basically on top of a slum, uh, the old the rookery, the old nickel which was a, a huge slum in uh, the Victorian times and what happened, the, uh, the philanthropists and um, they got together and they pulled it down and they built the boundary estate which is now a uh, a great two listed estates because of its architecture. And, but when they built it, they basically got rid of the tenants of the slum and forced them out, about 5,000 of them, and they were forced out to Dalston, to Bethel Green, and they weren't offered any, um, any of the um, flats that were built in the boundary estate because, um, the philanthropists decided they were for the deserving poor. And um, I know how you define the deserving poor. So so basically, they just checked out a load of people onto the street. A bit of, a bit of social cleansing going it on a, here. It was exactly social cleansing. And they went on and they ended up in slums in Dawson and Bethel Green. So um, I just found that a bit bad thing to do. You know, it wasn't particularly, uh, especially Victorian philanthropists um, uh, doing such a thing and so and then I started reading about the boundary and there's a book called The Child from the Child of the Jago by Arthur Morrison, a very famous book about the old nickel slum it's a novel based in the slum and they talk about the posties which was basically the entrance to the slum it was at these um, posts in the um, in the pavement and um, 
It's pretty lawless. I mean, they say that some of Jack the Ripper escaped into the old nickel. That's why the police never caught him because he would disappear into the, into the rookery um, and the police wouldn't go in there. I mean, that's, that's one story anyway. So that got me going and then I started reading other local history books and um, there were a couple of things that struck me. One was um, there was this woman called uh, Sherry Potts and she was a professional um, shoplifter and she was in small time, you know, just nicking a couple of bananas from the from the grocery. She had big time. She had a team, and they would go to Amsterdam, Geneva, and Paris on shop. Oh, when, when was this? This was this in the fifties, fifties and sixties. And um, she's a real person, Shirley Potts. And I thought this got my imagination going. You know, you couldn't make it up really. And actually, the probably the best story about her was that when she died in 1992 she was buried in this Sandra Rhodes dress that cost £5,000 and which had not been bought you know her mates basically nicked the dress so that she can go off in style and that is a great great little story um, so she was a true figure that I used to as inspiration for Elsie, one of the main Elsie in your book, yeah, of four characters in the book, and um, you know, going back to the Boundary States, yeah, I, I gave a free copy to somebody who lives there, and and he was saying that when he moved into the Boundary States in the eighties, you know, one of his neighbours had been a chauffeur for the Craterins. You know, you're just like. Two, two degrees removed from history wherever you go here. It's amazing. Um, like one of your neighbours was a chauffeur for the Craterans, who, of course, just lived down the road. And um, so you've got all that history on your doorstep. You, know, you just cannot fail to be stimulated by it. Can you just, for the sake of the uh, listeners, can you just position the estate or the nickel, the old nickel as it was in terms of just that the boundary defined it, I think, because you've got Brick Lane, haven't you, to on the on the east, and you've got Shore, um, what is it, Shoreditch High Street on Shoreditch the west. High, Shoreditch High Street, and you've got uh, Commercial Street, uh, Bethel Green Road. So it's in that corner, tucked away. And you, can't, you have to go there to see it in a way because you've got high buildings all around. So you, you can't really see it from the road. So it's not a place you would typically go to or go through unless you sort of had to. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And um, and, and I remember I first moved to the area in sort of like 1998 uh, or else I knew the area fairly well before then. And there was very little in Shoreditch at the time. It was dark because there were no streetlights. It was just... Um, there were empty warehouses, it was dark, and you just had this boundary estate. And there was just one part, the owl and the pussycat. <laughs> so it's just really amazing corner, really, that's forgotten. A lot of Shoreditch High Street was, uh, you know, derelict. Um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing change that's, that's taken over the whole place. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout-outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or even meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger. 
just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. I just want to read this description of what it was like back in the, um, I can't, I can't find who wrote this. It was, a. this was in a published article in 1863 in the illustrated London news, a description of old nickel, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Yeah. 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 It, it just absolutely visceral description. There's nothing picturesque in such misery. It is but one painful and monotonous round of vice, filth and poverty, huddled in dark cellars, ruined garrets, bare and blackened rooms, teeming with disease and death, and without the means, even if there were the inclination, for the most ordinary observation of decency or cleanliness. It's just yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, it's, it's not brilliant, but I mean, yeah, it just yeah. gives you a real visceral sense of the, the deprivation and poverty yeah, that existed yeah, at the time. Yeah. And I just felt that to, to push those people out and to refuse to give them these spanking new apartments in the Boundary Estate was, I just thought that was pretty crap, actually. And so my book is all about those who are pushed out getting their revenge by, you know, sort of, um, you know, by hook or by crook, sort of acquiring property around um, sort of the, the original gentrifiers in a way, um, around Shoreditch and um, using that to build up basically a, a, a mafia. And uh, so it's quite... So you, know, you said before impact. we started that, that, yeah, that, that this is based on truth and you, you, you talk about a group of... Um criminals criminal yeah. fraternity called the posties yeah. what what is the, what is the degree of truth in the posties the fact that they um okay they didn't exist as a as a defined group getting their own back on being chucked out of the uh, old nickel so i made that bit up but the posties was from that a child of the jager novel because the posties were the um you know bollards in the street that marked the entrance to the rookery and um there's even a story to those isn't there where are they, where are there's an amazing story to those yeah yeah exactly because uh some of them uh, and they still are you can see them were ex cannons you know so cannon barrels um from some of the napoleonic wars or whatever and um so it's just everything is just steeped in history and everywhere you go and and, and look at so you've got these um these career criminals, <laughs> semi mafiosa type, called the posties. Just, just outline the. I don't want to give the story, the storyline, but just outline the plot of the book for us. Basically, it's um, it's the, the book runs on two parallel timelines: the 1950s, when um, basically you had one of the character Frank, who was the fixer for the posties, and he would. Um, get inconvenient people out of the way, so to speak. And then you have the parallel in the, in the current day time where they've obviously, their whole empire of properties has been built up. And now the new generation of posties are kind of bored. They want the money and a nice life. So they're trying to sell off the properties and try and disguise the fact that they were basically pinched in the first place. So it's a parallel track and the the modern day track goes into issues like um, the whole gentrification we've seen in, in Shoreditch and the opposition we've seen grassroots opposition to that and the, the Bishopsgate um, Goodsyard um, 
proposals we've seen that even um, Boris Johnson's plan people turned down because of too many skyscrapers. So we're still waiting to see what happens with that. But um, so these two parallel tracks, really, how the post-empire began in the 50s and built up and how it's been dismantled, the last director of Shoreditch, because it was the director who was the um, head of the mafia group. And is that a character that you defined yourself? The director. Well, I got the idea of the director from a book that was written by Chippendale, um, the gentleman's director. That was his book of designs for furniture. And I used that because in the 50s and 60s, Shoreditch was the centre for furniture making in Britain. You had all these um, warehouses that were making furniture, storing furniture, and so I got that link, really, with with the industrial light industry past of shortage with the furniture making. And that's still some there. There's an upholsterer around the corner. He's been here since the 80s. And um, Michael. And so you still have that link to the old um, light industry of furniture making. That's why I brought in that Chippendale um, link. And have they changed their methodology for uh, gluing furniture together? They probably have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they probably <laughs> you have, have. You have to read the book to uh, to pick up on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. But Frank, the um, probably not giving anything away to say that um, he had uh, elephantitis, the um, huge ball. Yeah, I think you might have picked that up. I didn't spot this initially, but his surname maybe is a bit of a bit of a giveaway. Was that yeah. deliberate? Yeah. And anyway, um, such a character did actually exist in Shoreditch. People remember him from the 50s and he had to go around wearing a skirt because he couldn't get trousers on. <laughs> so, you know, you didn't have to make these characters up. It's just remarkable. It's utterly remarkable. So how do they come into, I mean, these? how do they get the properties in the first place? And then obviously they, you know, did all the title these to... Insurance jobs. Insurance, insurance jobs. jobs. You need to be careful because I'm in the insurance industry. Yeah, yeah. Getting rid of people. <laughs> yeah. That there's um, one of the ways of getting rid of the people was to, uh, well, set them alight. And I, I got the idea from Shoreditch was the, probably the first municipality in Britain to have what was called the dust destructor. It would basically burn refuse to create electricity. And so they had this heat and light um, building in what is now the National Art Centre for Circus. So if you want to train to be a trapeze artist, that's where you'd go today. But before, it used to be the dust destructor where I used to burn municipal waste and provide electricity for all these uh, different buildings in Shoreditch. And they had what's called the Electricity Showrooms, which was a bar in Shoreditch for many years, and now it's been turn into something else so um it's just all there you don't have to make it up no it's phenomenal i mean it is parts of it do feel made up i mean obviously the story of frank and his uh his anatomical sort of uh idiosyncrasies <laughs> <laughs> and his, his dress sense wearing a kilt and uh, now we know the reason why you know the dust destructor insurance fraud property fraud mafia it's it, it's all in there it is it's fascinating it's a, it's a really wonderful book and it, it gathers together so many different elements of um, the East End of London and the gentrification. You use this word quite a lot in the, in the book, Silicon Easters. 
What's a siliconista? Siliconista, I made that word up. Um, I guess so, yeah. What, what it is, it's the, it refers to, uh, Shoreditch gets a lot of his energy from, basically the young people who work in the uh, internet startups, which are everywhere. I mean, there are probably two, three hundred different internet startup companies um, based in Shoreditch, uh, sort of Silicon Roundabout, of course, Old Street. And there are major, major, they're the future of the country in a way, you know, these um, tech companies. And and you just feel the energy these young people have um, when they're at the bars in the evening, um, you know, they, they help make Shoreditch what it is today. And so in the book, you know, you have, you know, the weary um, Nick who's been here since the 80s, uh, well-off sort of gentrified, gentrifier in a way, a first waiver. And then um looking down a bit on the uh the, the millennials and... is that partly you? No, not really, because I kind of admire way. them, you know, and, and you kinda realise that Nick's a bit of a twat really. Uh, you know, he um because uh, the way the millennials see him, you know, it's it's it's, it's a more of a nuanced, complex picture, really. You know, it's just that intergenerational thing. You know, they each generation thinks they know best. So he's like partly retired. He's been there, done it, and they want he's working for this uh, this woman who wants to spy on her husband. She thinks yeah, he's, he's got nothing else. He's got nothing else to do. You know, he's had so many bonuses, at banks. So he's he's bored. He's not old enough to retire. So. Um, so around these cafes and uh, yeah, yeah. So um, dodgy saunas and places checking up. Exactly, on... yeah. And then he, you know, his his friend, ex colleague, um, she kind of suspects her husband, who turns out to be one of the posties, and um, she suspects him of having an affair, but he's not. He's just taking part in helping to sell off the uh, the postie empire. And uh, so, yeah, it's all kind of, as I say, two parallel time strands that interweave and you show how one created the other. And uh, it's a bit of fun, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, a heavy novel. It's, um, it's, it's a bit of fun, a wry look. Yeah, no, not at all. It, it's not a difficult book to read, as you say. It's very engaging. It's very fun. The characters are a bit sort of Dickensian in in style and in in character and personality. I don't know whether that was deliberately deliberate on your part. H- how did you go about from um, a, a, a procedural point of view in in writing the book? What was your what was your methodology? Do you do you do you did you map out the the plot line? Did you just sit down and write? You know, break through writer's block at six o'clock in the morning. What did, how did you do it? How do I do it? You basically you just realise that it's not going to be written until you sit down and do it. And, and so I would just sit down every evening for an hour and just write what I could. It took about a year to write the first draft. You don't write it in the order it comes out. I mean, um, I actually started with the second chapter with Nick in a cafe in today, but um, and then I went to the chapter that became the first chapter and and. And basically, Frank just took over. You know, I just had the picture of him leaning over over the canal at night. I thought, no, I need to start with that. So a reverse course. And, yeah, you know, you, you just you got to push your way through. Um, you've got to give up thinking has to be perfect. You just 
just drive yourself through to the end and then you go back and back, rewrite, rewrite, rewrite. Did you have the plot in your head, broad, broadly speaking? Roughly, yeah, uh, roughly, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and also, once you get into something, you know, your mind's whirring away all the time. You suddenly wake up in the middle of the night and write down some bits. And so, you know, it just takes over, really. And so you just carry on. And uh, once you've done the first draft, then it's a lot easier. You, you, you know, you can then just improve and, more importantly, cut out crap bits that don't work. Because sometimes you think of the funniest scene in the world and you realise once you've written it, it's not, or it doesn't really fit in. So, you know, so you have to just, you know, cut it out, and, and it works who, better. Because you self-published, I believe, didn't you? Did you? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Did yeah. You, I, sort of, go on. I, yeah, I tried getting an agent. It was impossible. And you, know, you talk to people in the industry, and some people can be for years trying to get an agent. And I thought, well. By then, it's going to be old, you know, it'll be stale. You just just get it out of the way, you know. And um, and and you, and you also learned a lot about the economics of the business, you know. That the vast majority of novels, no matter how they're published, um, don't make any money. I mean, uh, people are not buying books. Um, so, you know, unless you're Jeffrey Archer and you sell five hundred thousand copies, yeah, you'll make money. Or Jackie Rowling. But the vast majority of novels will not make you money. They'll make you less than the minimum wage. Um, so forget any, you know, retiring off earnings. So, and I looked at self-publishing, and some people do really well. You know, they they they, they do really well. And so um, I thought I'll give it a go. Uh, in a way, I'm lucky because I've been a journalist all my life, so I can know how to edit. But I also paid people to go through it and edit. You need some, somebody independent to say, cut this out, it's rubbish, or whatever, or rework that, it doesn't work. So I had that done and get it proofed properly. You have to do it professionally. Um, get it set professionally, get proper cover and everything. I mean, most of the sales are online, Kindle or whatever. So um, it, was a, it was an interesting learning curve. Yeah, it was a lot of work. It's um, but but you enjoyed it though. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to do another one. I'm trying to get some ideas together, but um, it's a dream come true in a way to to, to write a book. You know, because especially it's cliche for journalists. You know, they think, oh, I'll I'll do a proper thing. Yeah, you know, rather than just pretend articles, I'll write a novel. And I'm glad I did it. You know, that's something fairly coherent, fairly funny came out at the other end. Yeah, did you intend it to be as uh, as raunchy and as violent as it was in places? Um, yeah, yeah, because I, I I thought it, it's it's not a gloomy. No, no, know, no, it's not without humour. It's it's, it's, it's not humour. It's a bit of fun. It's a modern fun novel. You know that uh, you can read quite quickly. You know, the chapters are short. Uh, yeah, that's what I punchy. like. I, I do like books with short chapters because then you can feel you're making progress. I can't stand books with 30, 40 page chapters and you, you know, you want to put it down and go and have a bite to eat or something. I like to put a book down. No, no, I'm, I'm at a natural break and then I can come back to it. Yeah. No, again. no. It's, I, I just thought, you know, um, do something that people enjoy reading. Uh, Cause um, yeah, just a bit fun. So what's your, 
you say you've got thoughts of another book. Is it also going to be a London sort of centric book, or you've got other ideas? Yeah, so, um, yeah I mean, uh, some sort of other ideas based in London. Um, it's funny, my my, uh, my father passed away about two years ago, and uh, I guess I, this trove of love letters to courting letters to my mother, and um, so I'm just slowly going through them, and and you kind of see a different aspect of your parents that you you didn't know, obviously. And so that's quite interesting. Maybe something working, something around that, maybe. Your mother's not around anymore, I take it. No, no, she's passed no, away no. as well. Yeah, yeah. lived to a ripe old age, so I was uh, very lucky. Do they live? I mean, were they in London, based in London, or they were still sort of in, in Wales, or where, where were they? No, situated? they were based in Wales. Yeah, 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 yeah. My my mother actually wrote books for children in Wales, and um, oh, well, she, so she was a published author. Yeah, yeah, she, she wrote five books for children. And um, so she always said, you know, why, do, why don't you write something? You know, you're supposed to be a journalist. You know, they write, don't they? So she'd always said that. And I managed to do a near-complete draft for her to start reading be, 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 before she passed away. So I was, oh, I was quite pleased with that. Yeah, that was yes. nice. Yeah. Good. So she got to see that uh, you were gonna, you were gonna go places with that. So I mean, has, has it sold or has it performed as you would have hoped, given that you self-published? Not really. It's self-published. It's, it's it hasn't sold them thousands. No, I mean, um, but I'm, I'm just quite happy that it has had a few sales and that the feedback has been okay, and it's given you encouragements that it's worth doing in the first place. Um, but as I say, you, know, you, you just don't do it for the money. Forget that. Um, unless you have freak good luck and something ticks. But, you know, that, that's how it is. Uh, yeah. But I, wouldn't, I, tell, I tell people self-publish is better than not publishing at all. And that even if you do get a, a, an agent or whatever, the likelihood of your book doing real well is still zilch. Um, so don't don't let that hold you back. No, you should write for the for the pleasure first of the, of the process, and then for the love of uh, what you're going to produce, without question. Um, otherwise, it's just not going to. No, it'll be false. It'll be fake. false. Absolutely. Well, it, it's a wonderful book. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I would thoroughly recommend it to everyone listening. It's called "The Last Director of Shoreditch" by Hugh Jones, H U W Jones, the, uh, the the good old Welsh way of spelling Hugh. Um, so like you can get it in all well, the news. The newsreader, yeah. I think there's a rugby player as well, Hugh Jones. When you, if you in Scotland, you yeah, up. he plays for Scotland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. He did indeed. So you can find that on Amazon. I don't know how much it costs, but it, I, I bought a copy. Um, it's six expensive. quid or something. Yeah, yeah, six quid or something. I thoroughly, it, thoroughly it, recommend it. It's less than the pint of a Craftdale and Shoreditch. <laughs> Well, you can you can take a copy. You can sit in a coffee shop now with a mask on, read it alongside all the silicon easters. That's right. Yeah. Once, once they're, they're coming back, back slowly, they're coming back. Are they slowly. coming back slowly? Are, they, yeah. are the offices starting to fill up again now? They are. Yeah, yeah. I think because you know, younger people obviously they're less at risk. So um, yeah, they're, they're starting to come. But they're the ones that they can work from home quite easily anyway. So, but they're starting to come back. Who's now living in this estate in this area? So, what was the the rookery? Then it was the the, the estate. 
and then in the eighties, it was you know lots, lots of the left were being sold off privately. Exactly, and, uh, with the Thatcher the, the thing, um, the, the playwrights. Yeah. <laughs> it's about still about thirty percent um, council townhouses, council properties, but yeah, a lot being sold off under the uh, right to buy with Thatcher. So, um, but uh, so what know, is a what is a two bed? Well, I don't know what are they two three bed properties there. What do, what do they go for nowadays? Probably five hundred, six hundred thousand. It's, it's ridiculous, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're yeah, fortunate you, enough under the right to buy scheme of uh, did make a few quid, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you, you go for a takeaway when the Indians in Brick Lane and, and you chat to them, and they say their kids can't afford to live there. Um, they have to move out, and it's the old story, you know, having to move out further and further out. But um, somehow. Londoners have always managed somehow to survive. If you, I would also recommend people who are interested in this area of London and this time of London, this period of London, to go and check out some of the uh, the pictures of the slums in the Victorian period because it's quite staggering the degree of filth and deprivation yeah, that they lived yeah, in yeah, yeah. at the time. And do do so. What was some wider reading? If people want to read wide more widely on this area, you you, you suggested the book. Um, the Child of Jago by Arthur Morrison. Are yeah. there other sort of books that uh, you can recommend to people? Yeah, I mean, if you want to read more about what inspired um, Elsius, Shirley Potts, um, P-O-T-T-S, um, that's uh, on Amazon as well. Um, so, but I, I, I think you should start with The Child of the Jago. That, that's where to start. Um, that's there are the classic, other, isn't it? Yeah, and try the gentle author, the blogs, um, the written blogs from the gentle author. He writes about personalities it, it, very much in Arnold Circus, Brick Lane, um, Shoreditch. Some fascinating people. Um, so Arnold Circus is now what is is the centre, isn't it, of the uh, yeah? The it's the bandstand. It's the circular it's bandstand. The bandstand. Which that is was built, built on a mound of yeah, rubble, fr- built from mound of rubble from the old nickel. Yeah, it was just so scooped was, up. Yeah, and apparently they did some excavation of uh, that that pile of rubble and detritus and found all old bones and pottery and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Yeah, yeah, people disposed of. It's quite quite remarkable. So before we wrap up, how can people, if they want to get in touch with you, uh, how, how do they go about making contact with you? I mean, do you have a website or social media account? Yeah, I have a website. Um, it's shoreditchnovel.com, the uh, the website. That's got my uh, email address. So, yeah. Uh, also, I have a um, Twitter account, Shoreditch Novel uh, Twitter account, so you can get in touch that way as well. So um, on my Shoreditch Novel, I have a few blogs about uh, different personalities and what inspired me to write the book, plus other things going on in, in Shoreditch as well. So, um, yeah. You should do some guided tours, of course, socially distanced, naturally, but uh, you should do some tours of the old. So, <laughs> yeah, everyone comes along with their mask. And... Well, the two of those are coming back as well. I saw them the other day, uh, yeah, especially the graffiti tours. Um, so, they're quite popular around here. And some of the architecture tours, and of course the the craze that they have tours as well. Brilliant. Well, before we wrap up, I also I always ask 
all my guests to mention one or two places in London that are particularly personal to them or, you know, have a special resonance and meaning to them. I, I don't know if you're going to mention Shoreditch or maybe somewhere else in London that uh, you particularly like, but have you managed to give it any thought? Yeah, I mean, one place I really love is Bunhill Fields, which is uh, part of Shoreditch. It's the old cemetery, Bunhill Fields. It's like a time capsule. Uh, it's by Moorgate. And um, it's just these old um, sort of uh, headstones everywhere, sort of uh, from the Victorian age and earlier. And, and in some ways, it's a bit like London itself. It's a mix of all these different people because you've got Daniel Defoe's grave there, uh, Robertson Crusoe fame. You've got John Bunyan of the Rake's Progress, uh, you know, the Wesley. They're all buried there, plus ordinary people. You know, so it's, it's, it's a mix. It's like um, a people's version of Highgate Cemetery uh, or more, the more posher kind of go-to cemeteries. Um, so I really like that. It's a great place. Yeah, no, we have we haven't we, we haven't had a cemetery yet <laughs> as a recommended yeah. place to visit. But so so there you go. There's a new one, and it has a small place to sit as well, a nice green bit so you can sit under the trees, not just the headstones. And I guess the other place is um, the Barley Mow. It's a pub in Shoreditch. It's on the corner of Curtain Road, and it's where you stand on a Friday or Saturday and just watch the whole Shoreditch go by while you're having a pint. Sounds good. Sounds good. Maybe there are a couple of places I will go and visit when things get a little bit more back to the uh, the, the new normal and I can get up to town again. Go and see the Boundary Estate. Uh, it's in the Boundary Estate, is it? No, no, go and see the Boundary Estate. It's worth oh, seeing. Well, no, absolutely. No, I, I absolutely will do that. Yeah, perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, uh, Hugh. Really great. Great we could catch up and we got the uh, the IT working in the end. Good, thank you. We've we got, got an, an average um, Wi-Fi connection. <laughs> we, yeah, we and thank you for what you do. You know, it's it's, uh, it's it's an amazing thing to uh, kind of show people, real people, that uh, what goes on in London. Yeah, no, that's what it's all about. We want to showcase people doing good things in and around or for London, not just the uh, the rich and famous, but people like you who are um, living their everyday lives and doing doing good things. So you've got some interesting days ahead with. Um, Brexit coming back into the news again and uh, the the fallout from COVID. So you're going to be busy. You're, you're not going to be furloughed, I suspect, anytime soon. They're, they're going to need you not. to report. <laughs> <laughs> so keep up the good work. We look forward to your, your next novel. Let us know when that's going to be and what that's going to be about. And we okay, will we'll uh, put you out there. It's been great having you on. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. I absolutely love creating Your London Legacy for you, and the feedback and testimonials are awesome. But as it grows, so it consumes more and more resources. So I've joined forces with Patreon, a really cool place where you can show your love and support from just as little as $2 a month as a silver Londoner, right up to $300 per month where you get the crown jewels. Each level of subscription opens up a host of exclusive extra goodies, events, bonus shows, and sponsorship opportunities only available via, via Patreon. I do hope you'll continue to support what we're doing here. And I'm so grateful for whatever you feel able to give. So please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. That's www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy.